Hello, and welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today's guest is a fun one, somebody that I've known for a very long time, somebody that I greatly admire. He's a great leader in our community and in our industry. He has excelled not only in real estate, but also finance and tech in the highest levels. Leo Pareja is the president and co-founder of Remind and the former national president of NAREP. Welcome to the show, brother. It's been long overdue. I'm so glad we could do this. Yeah, thanks for having me, bro. Absolutely, brother. And it's listen, it's like I've known you for quite a few years and we've sat on a lot of industry panels together. And it always seems as though you and I are having our own conversation and the audience is trying to figure out what the hell we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and so this should be a really fun conversation. But before we jump in, you are an overachiever, the highest levels. But can you share with our listeners how you actually even got started in the industry? Yeah, so I, I always joke and say my previous occupation was high school because that's how early I got in. It's crazy. Um, you, know, you know, in life, you can either be uh, smart or lucky, and I'm, I'm always more grateful to be lucky. And how I got into the industry is, is one of those. I, I fell in love with it super early on. I read a, uh, Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was 18 years old and kind of decided that this is what I wanted to do with my life. But the, the short version is I... Um, Got obsessed with real estate while I was a freshman in college. Uh, went to go work for a uh, Keller Williams franchisee and home flipper. Learned the business really young. And I bought my first place the summer of my uh, freshman year of college. Used a FHA, non-occupant co-borrower status with my dad co-signing me. Bought my first place with my commission as my down payment because that was my 3% down payment rented out three of the rooms and lived basically rent-free, had an aha moment and sold 11 homes to other fraternity brothers and sorority girls at, at my university uh, and made something like $60,000 during my summer vacation, decided that's what I was going to do with the rest of my life. That's crazy. I mean, that's like <laughs> such a great story. I love this. This is so great. And then, and made it a career, did you ever? But, you know, you're, you're also one of the most humble people I know. But, you know, you started when you were 19. And by 28, you were actually the number one real estate agent in the world for Keller Williams. I mean, that's obviously takes a lot of discipline, right? So tell me three things that you think helped you achieve that goal. So uh, you just complimented me and said, I, I, I am humble. I was not when I was 21 years old. <laughs> so at my senior year of college. Nobody was. <laughs> well, my, my senior year of college, I made $306,000 in gross commission income and had basically no expenses. So um, I thought I was God's gift to real estate. And I did not appreciate the fact that I was just a creature of the greatest bubble in the history of the world. And so... Um, what, what really shaped me, the, the three things that, that helped me achieve that was getting my, my butt whooped during the financial crisis and, and really realizing that all the stuff that I quote unquote theoretically knew, like have repetitable systems, have lead gens that's consistent, hold your dollars accountable, all of those really, really basic fundamentals, which, you know, I think my evolution is I've just evolved into an entrepreneur. I don't... I think I could go into any industry and I just understand kind of the macro thought processes to, to dissect a way of making money. 
is really what came from that. Once, once you lose everything, right. Everyone's kind of, I think one of the most asked questions I get when I'm on panels, if, if you could start over and you knew what you knew now, I actually had one of those moments in 2007. So I, I kind of started from the ground up. It changed my DNA. I, I became very frugal. Um, you, you, you've known me a long time. I, I don't drive fancy cars. I don't wear expensive watches and I'm in a jeans and a t-shirt most of the time. Um, so I, I got to start over and become kind of almost a scientist at my craft. I started flying all over the country and sitting with the top agents at every company. And I just methodically built my business back up and um, grew it to one of the largest practices in, in the business. I love that. I don't think you gave me the three pieces of advice, though. <laughs> so I, I, I would say, uh, yeah. So pick a business model. So niches are where I think the money's at. Um, I was, I've always been niche focused. Uh, secondly is, is know your numbers obsessively. And then the third is, is to always be learning. So, you know, it doesn't matter what's working right now. Always realize that the market is shifting. Nothing's ever going to go back to what it was. And the, the name of the game is, is learning as fast as you can. And where I think the biggest agents miss out on this opportunity is to actually um, observe shifting markets outside of your area. So, for example, as I was growing up in the D.C. metro market, California was always the canary in the coal mine for me, mm-hmm. going up or down, even in marketing trends. So I was making lifestyle videos in 2012, 2013, right? Before they were kind of always being done, but I was watching the agents Southern, Southern California do it. When the market collapsed, San Francisco went down before we did. So by, by being in touch and networking with other agents, it's not just to like, best practices. It's actually market trends that are super important. And, and like this market shift we're living through is going to be kind of fascinating because um, unlike other ones, it's not going to affect the country as broadly as the last ones have, right? As macroeconomic problems. Um, I think this is going to be like, you know, right before you hit record, New York's going to dip much faster than other markets and your arguments and it's going to come back. But I'm in Miami right now and we're getting all the New Yorkers. So the prices are literally going up. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, no, it's, it, it's going to be fascinating to watch. And, you know, and, and that's really interesting because we were having this conversation off offline. And I think it's interesting to, to continue it because I'm actually, you know, you know, I'm in, I'm in both markets. And so I am here in, in, in New York and was really contemplating. And my accountant was really, uh, uh, thinking that I should relocate for tax purposes and things of that nature back down to Florida. And so I started looking in the last couple of months and you're right. Every other New Yorker was doing the exact same thing. And so the prices were going through the roof and I was just like this, in my opinion, this house is just not worth it. Right. And so I think that what's happening is that people are acting impulsively, which is really the, the, the worst reason to go and purchase real estate. And I understand that people are, you know, wanting to have space and, you know, we're living in the middle of a, of a, uh, of a global pandemic. People don't really sort of know about the viruses that are just coming to, to market around the globe. Um, But, you know, what I'm doing is that I'm here sitting in New York city, born and raised in New York, looking at trends that have happened historically. And as I was mentioning to you, you know, some, some lofts, which were, completely out of my price range even a year ago 
are now certainly within them. And so that's a really interesting trend to me. New York will always be New York. And, you know, there, there have been a lot of fluctuations. But to your point, it's at actually a leading indicator, right? So New York, San Francisco, L.A., these larger markets where that whatever affects that, then other markets will follow. Absolutely. And, 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 and this is what's going to be interesting in the debate, right? Because what I've learned over time is that changing human behavior is one of the hardest things possible. And, sure. you know, I, I've learned that now building software. <laughs> right. And so, Absolutely. You know, the things that work are, and, and whether it's a habit, and, you know, if I was coaching a new agent, it's like, you know, you got to get through that first 60, 90 days, and then it becomes a habit. You know, I, I think we're, you know, I, I don't even want to make a prediction because this is a human behavioral prediction versus like where I think society is shifting. But I always say I'm a sample size of one, right? And we gave up three of our four commercial offices. We've done surveys with our employees and we said, do you want to come back to the office with like north of 70, 80% of the people saying no, right? So where, where shifts can be permanent after this is because business is, is kind of always f- striving for efficiency, right? If a percentage, I don't know what percentage, if a percentage of companies say, you can now work remote because from a business standpoint, I don't have to carry an office space. Mm-hmm. I don't have to buy lunches. I don't have to buy coffee. Uh, you actually get rid of a bunch of HR issues, right? It's, it's hard to play Game of Thrones over Zoom. Um, sexual <laughs> harassment goes down down substantially because it is it, it, the opportunities for impropriety and and all that ugliness that comes with you know managing humans at scale almost dissipates and and from an um, employment standpoint I, we're consistently losing engineers to Amazon headquarters too in DC but if 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 the entire country is my hiring. Uh, landscape now, you know, it, you can pay better wages, or, you know, less competitive than you would have to if competing in San Francisco, New York, LA, you know, all those primary markets. And if you remove the having to go to the city, I mean, I've, I've talked to a bunch of folks who said, you know what, we worked from home for six months and realized we can maintain this type of flexibility. I'm selling my house and going to Carolinas. I'm going to, you know, closer to parents. So I don't know, we almost had a very interesting examination of what's important as human beings during this pandemic. And, and a lot of people's um, aha moment is like, you know, family is very important. I haven't seen them. I want to be closer to my parents, my siblings, my cousins. So I, I do agree with you of how stuff is cyclical. And, um, you know, I think one of your other questions is you're going to ask me about one of my answers would, would have been of, you know, I'm very counter counter cyclical. I, I buy when everyone sells and I sell sure. when everyone buys. Agreed. But so I, I, I think in your case for New York is a probably absolute no brainer to do. But I think as, as, as we move forward, there is going to be a societal shift on how we consume stuff like commercial office space yep. is going to get reimagined, right? I have no clue how that's going to look, but it's not going to, it's not going back. I, I, I just, I don't see it going back. Retail. I mean, you know, we we shop differently now, right? It's it's the fact that things like you know, like Overstock had a thousand percent growth during the pandemic. Things that were not even in our radar were like going through the roof. Obviously, your 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 obvious ones like Zoom and things like that. Even even sort of you know, my my new company with EXP. The fact that there's absolutely no 
bricks and mortar and never has been. That was the whole business model. And now when you can actually sort of operate on something like that, it, it, it's actually done incredibly well. And so there are absolute to what you're saying. And it, it, and it is, it is the fact that there's going to be behavioral changes. There's no doubt in the fact that that's what it is. This pandemic and this, this, this global disease has changed the way that we will live. And there's no doubt about that, but I do think that there are still cities that are brands that when industries do come back, in whatever capacity they do, you know, in, in the banking sector, for example, um, you know, they're, they're, there's still that sense of if you're if you're at, um, at, at at Deutsche Bank or if you're Julius Baer or, you know, it's sort of like these old sort of like European institutions that have global offices. They're 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 sort of like at some point want to going to have that that office core at some point. But to your point, it's going to look different. Absolutely going to look different. Yeah, agreed. So this is good. This is a good debate. So when are you going to buy in New York? <laughs> I'm, I'm deciding where I'm going to buy in Miami. And, and well, that's true. You know, it's sort of, yeah, uh, I'm waiting until everybody else decides they don't want to buy there anymore and then I'll buy. <laughs> I think we're on the same page. I know. So, Leo, if you were, I, you probably already started in this route, but if you were an agent entering today, and I know that you get asked different questions, almost like what you would have done differently if you were entering today, but now with what you know, what would you give an agent one piece of advice? What would it be today? So, and, and the answer always is almost always the same. So I, I think A, if you're going to be in this business, you have to have very honest conversations with yourself and who you are, right? Because you hear of very successful agents that do things very, very differently. And I think that's the success that comes from this business is by leverage, leveraging your God-given talents and the ones you've nurtured. So, you know, if you're you're highly social creature like you and I are, you know, be in a, do business in a way that you build deep relationships and it, 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 you thrive in it, right? If, if you're highly analytical, go direct marketing, go cold marketing, go, go ways that your personality, you know, shines because this, this is, when you enter this business, it's not a business, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle and it's all consuming. So if, right. you, if, you, if you don't love it, you're not, you're not going to do well. But if you're a brand new agent, I've had the same advice since probably 12 months into the business. I would go find whomever you think you want to become, go work for them. Whatever split, whatever they're willing to pay you, osmosis to me is the best way of learning. Um, if you want to be like somebody, I'd go work for them and try to absorb as much as you, you can. And one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to shorten your learning curve by you know seven years, or you're going to realize that that's not who you want to become and you're going to save yourself seven to 10 years. So um, I, anytime you can kind of short circuit the process is, is a win in my book. I love that one, actually. That one, that one's really good. And then, you know, there's also a little bit of having a balance, right? Whether you are um, social like we are or analytical, which you are both, actually. Um, but it, it, you have to have a balance, right? And remember that you and I were, were, um, were sitting on a panel together a couple of years ago and somebody we were talking about, like, you know, you mentioned earlier, like, know your numbers as one of your three. And we were talking about not just what you sold last year, but what's your customer acquisition cost? And people looked at us like we had 12 heads. 
And it was like, you know, you have to sort of know that because how do you create a budget otherwise? You're the CEO of your own company as an independent contractor. And it's those types of things where you need a little bit of that personality when it's yours, right? But then you also need to know what's your cost. This is your business. Exactly. I no, and that, that, that's when I said earlier that I, I feel like I've evolved into an entrepreneur that, that you know, CAC, cost of acquisition, TAM, total addressable market, you know, LTV, lifetime value of a customer. All, right. It doesn't matter whether I'm selling houses, lending money, or selling software. You know, th- those are kind of the universal truths of business. And that, that's that's where I think if somebody wants to grow and become a, a, a larger business owner than just having your own real estate practice, those are the non-negotiables that you have to become a student of. A hundred percent. So let's shift a little bit. Let's talk about NAREP, which is actually where you and I first met the National Association of Hispanic Real Estate Professionals. And you were the founding member of the DC chapter. And in 2017, you were actually the national president. Tell me about your own personal journey of helping Latino homeowners and our community really in general. So I've always, it's always been a very core part of my identity. I, I am actually, I immigrated here when I was 12 years old and most people think I was born and raised because I speak pretty good English, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've gone through that feeling of, of, of being a fish out of water and you know, I, I, I excelled pretty well in school and in business, but you know, I, I always wanted to be the number one that happened to be Latino, but I was always very proud of my heritage and, you know, um, wanting to give back as much as possible. I think whenever you do reach successful levels of, of achievement, you know, it's, 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 it's your God given duty to give back and however that means. And obviously I'm extremely passionate about our people and, and the plight and because I truly think they're the backbone of this country. They're the hardest working people on the planet. They don't ask for anything other than an opportunity. And so, you know, the problem with bias is that it's, it's most of the time, not on purpose. You know, the, the ugly one that we're aware of is the one on purpose, but there's a ton of it that's not on purpose. Mm-hmm. So from the educational level to the financial, you know, people don't appreciate that there's 26 million credit and in, credit invisible people of color in this country. Right. And that's just because they don't, they don't, uh, they like paying in cash because, you know, they come from countries where debt can actually, there's debtors jail, which is not, not enforceable in this country, but thanks to the 14th amendment, but there's behavioral stuff that people don't understand when they're legislating that if someone of that group isn't, actively lobbying and giving their voice to that, they, they get left behind. So uh, NARP's been a huge part of my life for what feels like as long as I can remember, but started the DC chapter and moved on to the national board and had the privilege of serving as the national president. Uh, but I mean, that was a pivotal chapter of my career as I was um, very involved during the financial crisis. Yeah. So I had a I was almost the de facto government liaison during the crisis because I lived down the street and they were based in San Diego. So there was a ton of stuff that either Gary or Marissa couldn't get to. So I was in many meetings that were way above my pay grade and experience level <laughs> in, in the White House Eisenhower offices, in the wow. comptroller of the currency. At you know, I was I was sitting in the room when they were debating Dodd Frank and CFPB wow. and. QM and QRM and just all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it was, a, it was an amazing experience from an educational level in multiple facets. One is that the fact that we've, the people we've elected to make rules don't know anything about a lot of things. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, the, that the concept of citizen lobbying is extremely important. It, it matters. Your voice matters. Getting in front of the representatives that you've elected matters. Becoming politically connected. And now I'm not talking about from like undue influence. I'm talking about from caring about whatever it is you do and the people you care about. So it, if, if the politicians you sent to, to, to D.C., don't understand the problems of your district and, and the people that, uh, that they represent. No one else is going to do it. The, the people who are going to do it are the special interest groups lobbying on behalf of larger companies. So uh, it, it was fascinating to learn how much access we have as U.S. citizens and Americans in this country to the people who make the rules. Um, and then just understanding how, you know, unintended consequences can happen through legislation. I see a run for office here somewhere. <laughs> this is like crazy, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it, it, you know, and you've said some really powerful things in there, Leo, and it really is part of, um, so, you know, the reasons that I admire you so much, it really is your caring and your passion and the idea of 26 million credit invisible people. I mean, that's a really powerful statement, you know, even, 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 even the words credit invisible, right. And people just don't think about it. You know, people that are, you know, we probably have four or five credit cards in our wallet and most people do. And, you know, when you start thinking about a large group of people that just don't because they don't trust it or believe in it or were raised with it, then how do you reach that clientele? And so, you know, you you also had um, a lot of great success in the financial world. You were the co-founding member of Washington Capital Partners in D.C., which is a private lending company. And tell me what niche you found in the marketplace. You probably already talked to it. And how did you actually reach that clientele? So it, it, it's kind of that, you know, your, your journey is an evolution. And that's, yep. I, I would, if I'm talking to young kids, like go high school and college, and they're like, well, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I, I tell people, taste a lot of things, right? I would encourage practitioners, look, master your craft, but at the same time, be open to curiosity and always be aware of opportunity because Washington Capital Partners was born, you know, out of a need is, is actually when I was sitting in those congressional rooms. And I realized that Dodd-Frank and a lot of the CFPB regulations were actually going to have an unintended consequence, which was to basically outlaw lending to flip homes to mom and pop investors. When they got rid of the ability to repay, like making that mandate a cornerstone of lending, which, by the way, was needed, right, because no income, no assets was literally weapons of mass destruction during the financial crisis, an unintended consequence is a bar. You could no longer do what's called asset-based lending. Right. If I walked into a bank and said, hey, this house is worth 500000 I need to borrow 250000 The bank would say, well, can you make the monthly payment? They're like, does it matter? I'm going to buy it, fix it, and resell it. And you have plenty of equity. I'm putting $250,000 down. Post-crisis, that loan could not be funded. And, and to this day, you still can't do it because the ability to repay on a monthly basis is the most important um, you know, ingredient in a loan these days. And again, imagine a contractor flipping five houses at a time. There's no way they can support the monthly payments. Most of those are escrowed in construction escrows, which, you know, you're familiar with construction lending. Yep. Um, so there was almost a, a vacuum created overnight through regulation. And I just saw an opportunity. I started uh, lending, you know, some high net worth individuals money almost as a broker fee. And then uh, grew it up, built software, built a process, uh, and 
eventually found a secondary marketplace in New York and grew that business to a very large uh, regional lender. But it was, I just saw a need based on change and chaos. And I would say that almost all of the large growth moments I've had in my career were actually born out of what other people would have viewed as a, as a disaster. And I kind of saw the opportunity because in, in chaos and turmoil, I think there's much greater opportunity when things are great, kind of everyone can do it. And that's when it gets really competitive and prices get driven down for service fees. But uh, I've always kind of saw the, the beauty in the chaos. I love that because it's so true, right? It's like being that um, going against the grain and, uh, and, and the beauty and the chaos. I love that. So, Talk to me now. You've succeeded with real estate. You succeeded with finance. That was one other thing you needed to do. Technology. I mean, you did it throughout, but now you actually want to conquer technology. It's always been a part of your life, but you, then you took a leap and you co-founded Remind, which is a technology data company that does what? Predictive analytics, right? Among other things. So, so we started with predictive analytics. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah, we've morphed into a full MLS technology vendor. So we, it's multi-modular, but pretty much every every piece of, of the MLS uh, technology space, we, we now have a product to fit that need. But I, I, I truly think technology is going to eat the world. And what I mean by that is every, every service provider, every um, delivery system, every business transaction will have a digital component to it. Um, my, my favorite explanation of this is my barbershop here in Miami. I moved here. I wasn't familiar with the area. I Googled barbershops and I found one company that had a big social media presence on Instagram and I downloaded their app. Um, literally right on the app, you by geocoding, it tells you what the closest shop to where you're physically standing is. I click on the shop. I then see the seven, eight barbers available their profile is their Instagram handle. So I can actually click on it and see their work. I select the barber and then select the times that are available. And then from a menu of options, I select whether I just want the, the, the haircut, the beard trim, the, the steam, the, whatever I want. It auto populates the length of my appointment based on the services I've selected. I then with Apple Pay, um, take care of the transaction, leave a tip, I walk in at my appointment. They greet you with either a cafecito because we're in Miami or you know, <laughs> your, your choice of a whiskey. Uh, but you never of have course. to wait. You never have to wait. You don't have to pull out your wallet. You know, almost every barber experience is literally the opposite of that, right? You, you don't sure. know how long you're going to be there. It's cash only. So you have to, you know, traverse to find an ATM because no one carries cash physically. And it's, it's a seamless process, right? What technology does is remove friction from process. And that's, I think that's where people kind of miss the boat. It's like, oh, if I build this, will people use it? I'm like, well, are you removing friction from the process? People hate friction. If you remove friction, that's how you get mass adoption. So, you know, I, I, I do think technology is going to eat the world. I think technology is going to substantially change real estate. It, it has already. We've it has seen- already. Absolutely. And it continues to. Absolutely. So, and you know, I think um, that, and that's why I kind of felt that that's where technology was uh, going and where, where I felt that I, I, I wanted to be part of it. And you're doing amazing with it. I mean, the company is just going gangbusters here. Yeah, we, we're now uh, live in 
57 plus MLSs, which represent a million, 1 million, 100,000 agents. So we have almost, almost 85% of all agents uh, that belong to realtor uh, NAR have access to our, our technology. That's amazing. That Congratulations. You so deserve that. It, it almost is a culmination of everything you've done, right? And you start talking about the different expertise you bring in on the real estate side, on the finance side, and on obviously the technology side. So it really is a culmination of your different industries. And, and that's actually one way I, I explain to people because we, when we were raising capital or we met with people and people would look at us they're like, how did you build this in three years? I said, I've been working on this my entire life, right? Right. Exactly. You know, domain expertise to me is one of the most important things when starting a business because, you know, the, I've seen, especially in real estate, I've seen a lot of people who enter the space who were a disgruntled customer who's like, oh, this was terrible. I'm going to fix it. But the difference when it's a domain expert, someone who's sold thousands of homes and, you know, the founder of Skyslope, Tyler Smith, was is yep. a great friend of mine and he was a top KW agent. But he was trying to fix his own problem and launched a phenomenal business. The founder of OfferPad is a practitioner, sold thousands of REOs, you know, so it, it's, you know, it, disruption is almost from the outside, but, you know, when it comes from the inside, it feels more like evolution. And I think that's when you see really cool things happen. I love it. So, you know, all these three different industries that you've actually had success in, Tell me what the single greatest lesson you've ever learned in your career is. That's a good one. Um, I would say that you're, you're never done learning. <laughs> I, I like that one. Because, you know, good and bad, there's times where I think I got it all figured out and the world gets shaken from under you. <laughs> and even when you enter a new space and you could be a domain expert, there's so much more you can learn, right? You, as whether it was real estate and then lending and then technology, I feel like I learned an entire new vocabulary right? <laughs> and, and, and that I would, I would say that that kind of like always be learning mentalities actually what's allowed me to thrive in them because I I've always jumped in with both feet first and wanted to learn the vocabulary and wanted to understand the customs of that industry. And what are the events I need to be at? Um, you, you said, you and I've sat on many panels and you know, that's something I've always kind of prided myself, even, I've, I've had that moment when we were brand new at something and kind of had that feeling of like the first time you ride a bike or drive stick shift and you're like, this is so awkward. But <laughs> I know in my head in six months and 12 months and 18 months, this will become second nature to me. Kind of the, the fun testament is within 18 months, I get to be on stage at that industry event um, because I was able to pick up quickly and, and kind of fully immerse myself in, in that industry. You know, and it's also you're never done learning, but knowing you, it's also the agility that one has to have, because sometimes you have things that come out of left field, right? Like like a global pandemic and everything that you've planned now, you know, goes into the waste bin. And now you have to sort of figure it out again. And how do you readjust and how do you make this now um, credible or 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 something that you need to have as a level of service, right? Because we just come back to servicing your client base. And so I think you've been incredibly agile as well. Well, I, you know, that, that I think is more nurture than nature. My, my uh, parents moved us a lot when I was a little kid. We went to a bunch of different um, countries because of my dad's work. He worked for a government agency. And so we were always moving in 12 to 24 months. I had to go to a new school, move countries. 
And so I think it was ingrained in me that change is constant and, and, and you're, you, you have the hand you're dealt. You can either choose to love it or, or be grumpy. And, you know, the second one kind of sucks. <laughs> Doesn't get you very far. No. So, you know, you also give back a lot, Leo, and that's another reason I admire you a lot. And so I know that you are, have a, you have a lot of philanthropic things that you do, but I know that you were part of the uh, Big Brother Big Sister program. Tell me a little bit about your philanthropic efforts. Um, so, you know, again, the financial crisis. So I always wanted to give. I, I, my, my dad was uh, very uh, successful in his, his industry, which was the nonprofit sector. And I saw my dad speak to 10,000 people when I was a little kid. And, you know, a lot, a lot of who I became was very much modeled after who, who he is. But it was very ingrained in me from the time I was a little kid that giving was a duty. If, if you have, you have to give. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of the, the circle of life. And so I always kind of had that programming. When I got older, I was going to do this and I was going to do that. And then the financial crisis happened. And I realized that, you know, there is no tomorrow. <laughs> there is, there's only the now. And that's early, early on. I was in my early twenties when that all went down. And I decided, you know, I, I don't want to have money, but I have time. And that's when I got involved with Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Uh, my wife, who was my girlfriend, then actually wanted to do Big, big Brothers, Big Sisters as well. And I, was, I think that's one of the moments where you decided, it's like, okay, this is my life partner. Um, but it's just always been aware of it. I've sat on boards of other organizations. And uh, most recently this year, uh, Ariana and I launched a family foundation. Um, because we want to be very focused with how we give and, and help as much as possible. And so uh, with our family foundation, we, we are very focused on helping women and minorities find a career inside of tech. So we, we want to take folks that uh, would have never thought of tech as an opportunity um, and, and create that pathway for them, whether that's paying for certification classes for boot camps, or even just as simple as making introductions, because there are so many entry-level jobs in this country that are um, don't need a college uh, degree and don't need a computer science degree, that we've seen people go 12, 18 months with hustle and grit and go from entry-level in the forty dollars to $60,000 range to mid-100s. Mm-hmm. Because they moved up from, let's say, QA testing or business analyst into product management or process management, and even decided to then become, you know, um, light front end, back end engineers and just really go up the scale very, very quickly, which, you know, representation matters, right? If, if no one in your community, no one in your cohort has done that, but guess what? You go and do it and you start doubling or tripling your salaries your siblings, your cousins, your friends will say, well, I can do that too. Sure. And, and that's how we make a significant change. I love that. That's, that's an amazing mission statement. And I want to get behind that with you. That's beautiful. I love that. And uh, see, just another reason. That's, that's a beautiful, beautiful statement. And you're changing, you know, you're not changing the one person's life. You're changing many when you do that. It's the idea of bringing somebody into a sector that they probably hadn't thought about. You know, we probably don't think about the technology sector in our community a lot because there aren't a lot of people like you that have that level of success in the industry. Absolutely. And, and, and yeah, like I, I would say I'm in a very small club of Latino founders who've raised the, the type yeah. of money we have. And when I'm at a conference and I speak and someone comes up to me, I was like, it's 
so important for me to see you because then it makes it real that I can do it too. I love that. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful statement. I love that. I have one other question for you as we wrap up. In your book of life, what's this current chapter called? See, I, I, I get stuck with that one because it, it, it would almost be growing, right? It, it, it doesn't matter what chapter of life I've been in. I always feel like I'm growing. And, and it, it's interesting, the older I get, the quote unquote, the more successful I get or the wiser I get, I feel like I have so much more to learn, <laughs> which, is, which is almost counterintuitive. Well, no, I'm older than you. That doesn't change. <laughs> yeah. So, so every, every chapter I feel like, oh, wow, okay. I now get a little bit more and I have so much more to go. So, you know, I, I would label the entire book just growing because it, it's, that's, that's the process. And at the end of the day, that's, that's what matters, right? There's, there's no destination that, that will fulfill you. And then, you know, that, that I would impart to any, anyone listening. It's like early on in my career, I was obsessed with titles and or destinations. I remember becoming the number one agent in the world for Keller Williams was actually a very, very disappointing feeling. Uh, because I drove to that obsessively for like five years. And once I did it, I didn't feel any different the next day. I actually kind of felt empty and meaningless because I didn't feel different. Nothing changed. I didn't make any more money. I, it was, it was somewhat disappointing because I had pointed all my energy towards that and nothing changed. Um, and it really was a reminder of it's, it's all about the journey. That's it. Absolutely. I love that. That's a great place to end this. My brother, thank you. It's, uh, it's been so fantastic. I got to tell you, it's been really a privilege of getting to know you over the years and really the, the amount of work that you do and the leadership that you do and how you inspire other people, not just in our community, but everywhere in our industry. And you really are a great inspiration. And I really, really admire you so much, Leo. And thank you for taking the time. Of course, my friend. Thank you. And thank you for all of you for listening. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Mm-hmm.